Today's video was recorded on November 1st, 2022. In this week's lesson, we'll complete the divine attributes that are found in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. And in doing so, we're going to explore the three distinct Hebrew words that are used for the types of sin that God is willing to forgive. So, Biblical Hebrew has numerous words that denote different aspects or even levels of sin. So, one word, like sin in English, just won't do when describing the nuances of human behavior. So, we have English words in our Bible like wickedness or iniquity or rebellion, but even those are just not as descriptive as the underlying Hebrew words. Our English is lacking in its ability to convey what's being communicated about the nature of those particular sins. Now, we're also going to look at something unique about the ancient Hebrew concept of sin and how it affects a human being. So, the ancient Israelites recognized that sin has ramifications on the human soul, not just that it disrupts our relationship with God, which it does, but that sin affects the inner nature of man, our soul, and our ability then to interact with the world once that's been distorted. Now, more than that, they even recognize that those ramifications of sin are often felt far beyond the generation that committed them. And we'll see that tonight as we finish up with the attributes. Now, either way, we recognize that God desires to forgive us and redeem our sin for goodness. God wants to bring us back on the path that he's given us to walk so we can impact the world and manifest his kingdom in the here and now. And by understanding the underlying Hebrew words for sin and their subsequent implication to the human soul, well, it's an essential part of understanding our own walk with God and why we must seek God's voice and avoid the many pitfalls that lay around us in the world today. So we hope you enjoy this lesson on the divine attributes and how sin affects us to the very core of our humanity. Like I said, I'm not really a fan of doing word studies because they can become tedious, which is why I gave you the definitions, because you really just have to reflect on them a little bit. But in this case, it's very important to look at these words and see what it's expressing about God, God's character, because that's what it's doing. We started last week looking at the divine attributes. We'll do a quick review of them, and then we'll focus really on the ones on sin, and then the last sentence, which is very hard to interpret the meaning behind. So, okay, divine attributes, you can turn to Exodus 34, 6 and 7, if you have your um, Bibles with you. and. I'm going to start off with a quick review, just going through how did we get to this point. So we've noted for a few weeks, we talked about the fact that the final 15 chapters of Exodus, there's a giant structure from Exodus tw chapter 25. Well, it's the end of chapter 24, all the way through till the, ve the very end. And it makes something called the chiastic structure. So it looks like an arrow. It's the one, one half of an X. And then we look at that chiastic structure, and the way they're built is the top one matches the bottom one, God's presence. Then you have the Lord gives instruction, and then Moses gives instructions. And then you have the commands of the Sabbath, and Moses commands of the Sabbath. 
And you can see what it does is it's driving you to a point. That's why they use chiastic structures. And there's a turning point. That becomes the most important place to look. So where do we need to go if we want to understand the last 15 chapters? We go to that center point. And so if we zoom in on it, we're right in the middle. We have the golden calf incident and the divine attributes. So Israel's going to sin right after they establish their covenant with God. And then they need forgiveness and they need restoration. And that's the divine attributes. So this is the turning point. And this is going to define the next 3,000 years of relationship that the Jews and Christians have with God. Because if he's not a God that forgives, we're all in for it, right? If he's not a God that's patient, it's not, this whole thing, relationship's not going to work out because we, you know, we're the ones who are failing in keeping up our half of the covenant. So this is where we're at. And so last week we talked about the importance of those divine attributes. And the difficulty is, is that when we look at it in English, well, English simply does not convey what Hebrew can. And that's a, that is a perpetual problem. And every rabbi who teaches from the Hebrew will tell you, if you're reading it in English, you're starting out at a deficit. Now, it's sufficient, meaning it's the Old Testament's sufficient for us to be in relationship with God, but we're still lacking something by, by the English. It just can't, you just can't capture um, what is in the Hebrew. So, if you have Exodus 34 open, we'll read it one time. I'm pulling this one from uh, a version that's called the New Heart English Bible. If you just Google New Heart English Bible, you'll find the, the website. You can't actually go buy the printed book, but you can download it. So here's what it says. Uh, of course, we talked last week. Moses has very little knowledge of God. What Moses sees are his saving acts. He sees redemption. He sees the deliverance. He sees some of God's power, but he doesn't know God's character. So Moses is going to say, look, I need to know who you are if we're going to go do this together. And so God says, okay, I'm going to, I'll pass my goodness before you. All of my goodness will pass before you. And then we get to Exodus 34, 6 and 7, the point where it's going to happen. And it says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a merciful and gracious God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth, keeping loving kindness for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin. And that will by no means clear the guilty, meaning he's going to hold the guilty accountable. He visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children and upon the children's children upon the third and fourth generation. These lines are repeated so often throughout the Old Testament that scholars look at it as it became a creed. So you'll find it all over the place. These attributes are repeated. So what do we have? Well, God's merciful, and we talked last week about the idea, the word for mercy is the same word they use. The noun means a womb. It's as if how a woman would react to a child who came out of her own, her own womb. That's how God reacts towards us. That's mercy. He's gracious, right? We, we don't deserve it, 
but he's going to do it anyways. He's slow to anger. He's abundant in uh, loving kindness, though. We looked last week at that word. It's everywhere in the Bible, hesed. And hesed can be translated love, but it's, it's often used within covenant loyalty. God's hesed means I'm, it's not just love because there's another word for love. Hesed is the, my covenant loyalty with my people. I made a covenant with you. I won't break it. God won't break his side of the covenant. We break our side of the covenant. Okay, so then there's truth. And God keeps the loving kindness. Same word, hesed for thousands, meaning he's telling you his covenant's eternal. And he's forgiving. This is amazing. We have a God who will forgive you. Well, and this is what we'll look at tonight. What's he going to forgive? Your iniquity, your transgression, and your sin. And those, as we, as we look a little closer at these, it's almost he's giving you the full spectrum of sin that he will forgive. Now, we have a tension though, right? Because God, yes, he will forgive you. Ah, but he's going to hold everybody accountable. It doesn't mean that he clears the guilty. You don't get away with, you can't take advantage of the covenant and want all the blessings, but then go sin. That's not how it works. That's not how a marriage doesn't work. Hey, I'd like to have all the benefits of, of a marriage, but I'm going to go off and do whatever I want. It's like, it doesn't work that way. So that doesn't work with God. He holds people accountable, especially people within his covenant. Now, we'll look at this last sent this last part of the verse is tough. And we'll look at some of these words tonight. We'll look at the word for visiting. What does that mean to visit? Uh, the NIV says punish, and I think that's wrong. I think the NIV is one of the only ones that says punish. You visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children, upon the children's children. To the third and fourth generation. So what does that mean? How do we interpret that, that final verse? Okay, so there are your two verses. That becomes creedal-like about the, because we want to know the character of the God that we're following. And I mentioned last week that one of the things that scholars will point out, which makes this an amazing description, is there are no power adjectives. For instance, it doesn't say anything about God's holiness or God's glory. It doesn't say anything about how powerful God is or his perfection. That is what all the gods in the ancient Near East will tell you. The most glorious of all the gods, the most powerful of all the gods. And when we get to our God, he says, no, 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 let me tell you about me. Mercy and grace and faithfulness and forgiving. And, and there's something profound about that because what I think what God is saying is, authentic power, the true power, is mercy and grace and love. And this is what Jesus did. He demonstrates this. That's authentic power, the ability to forgive. Do you have the strength to forgive? Do you have the strength to remain in truth? We, our world wants power. God says, I'll give you, I'll give you real power. Forgiveness. Love your enemy. So there's something about that. I think, and what's sad, of course, we have that old Christian myth that's been around for 2,000 years that the God of the Old Testament is mean and angry and all that. And it's, well, this, that's not what this says, right? We have the exact opposite showing up here. So I put on your sheet this week because I left this off last week. So this is on your sheet. It comes from a scholar named Terence Fretheim, and he has a book called The Suffering of God. And so what he notes about this, these 
this the character of God is that he says the crucial importance lies in knowing what kind of God it is. That's what Moses wants to know. They don't know God yet. They're just figuring out who this is, right? What kind of God who has been, who is, and who will be acting. And what we find is it's a God of faithful, who's loving and gracious and righteous. And that righteousness, uh, we often use the word righteousness as like a state of being. I'm righteous, meaning I'm in a state of whatever. That's not the, for, for the, in the Hebrew Bible, righteousness is action. If you've maintained your covenant, then it's action. You've, you're righteous. He's righteously maintained the covenant. If you've been faithful to your marriage, it's a righteous marriage because you've been faithful to the covenant that you're in. And so God's righteousness is, I will keep my promises. How many people love that idea, right? We want God to keep his promises. I want ultimate salvation. And we don't have to worry about God breaking the covenant. We worry about us breaking the covenant. And then, of course, he says, because God is faithful, loving, gracious, and righteous, there is hope. And hope is, you know, it's a psychological anchor in the calam. When we get into the calamities of life, in the chaos of life, hope is a psychological anchor. You experience hope in the calamity. And it anchors, it stabilizes you because you have the sense that there is something better in the future. And even if I'm suffering in the present, there's a God who will make it right. And that puts, gives you hope in the presence. And that phenomenon of hope is very powerful to stabilize you. The opposite of hope, despair. And that's when people crumble and they fall apart. They can't take the weight of the world and they fall into despair. That's a terrible place to be. So this is a great quote um, about these characteristics of God. Okay, th that's review. That's our review of what we did last week. And so what I want to do this week, then, is we're going to cover the second half of those. So last week, we talked about hesed, and we talked about mercy. And this week, we'll talk about these words that convey sin. So number two, there's three words that talk about sin or convey the idea of sin. And I'm going to walk through each three, and I just want you to get the gist but I leave you with the definitions so that you can reflect on them. And the idea, of course, God can forgive the totality. He could have just put one word, forgiving of sin, but he didn't. And so we need to look at why use three different words. Okay, um, something I want to point out that will, it, this will become clear as we walk through. These, these are on your sheet somewhere throughout, but I want to give you the answer before we go through them. So the first thing we have to notice, in English, we have one word, sin, and we tend to have that as a blanket meaning for any violation of God's commands. But because there's three distinct words, there's nuances, and it's important that we do the work to try to figure out what's the nuance showing me. So the second thing is, is in Hebrew, which is, of course, the Old Testament, the act of sin, the act, wickedness, is not separated from the consequence of sin. They see them together. And what we'll see later is there's a word that's used for wickedness. It also gets used for guilt, the consequence. 
So there's the act, you acted wickedly, and then you experience the consequence, guilt. They use the same word. So we don't do that in English. We have sin, and then we have something that's separated, and that's the consequence or the punishment. And so it's just an interesting thing that they see them fully together. We'll talk more about that later. And then finally, that sin, and the Bible links these together, sin affects the soul. So sin, it isn't just that I sinned and I just have to wait for the punishment from God. I sinned and therefore I, I stained, you know, I, sometimes I picture your soul like a bright, clean t-shirt. And after years of sin, it just gets grungy. And then God has to come in and wash it off with some hyssop and some, you know, strong soap. And that's getting rid of that sin. So sin affects the soul. And what we'll see is there's, a, I put some verses on there. You can connect them that when the word is used, it says, and by the way, this creates these problems with any human being. And I think everybody could probably understand that. If, if you've been corrupted for so long, your soul doesn't look like a human soul should look anymore. Internal, if we could see your internal being. Because you're so corrupted and the world looks distorted because of your corruption. So we'll talk about that, how these, the acts and consequences are connected and then they affect the human being. And that's what God doesn't want to happen. He wants you, he wants to save us from that, those ramifications. Okay, I'm going to work backwards. So the Bible says, he will forgive wickedness or iniquity. He'll forgive iniquity. He'll forgive rebellion. And he'll forgive sin, our word for sin. So I'm going to start with that one, sin. This is the broadest in the Bible, in the Old Testament. This word is the primary word for sin. It's used 580 times in the Old Testament. And it's the word hata. There it is in Hebrew for anybody who would want to pay attention to that. So the word sin, hata, well, what does it mean? Well, it means literally, quite literally, to miss the mark. That's how that's used in the Bible. In fact, um, in Judges 20, verse 16, I don't think I put that on there, but it's if you want to write it down, you can look at it. Judges. Uh, 20, verse 16, is talking about these soldiers, and it says the left-handed soldiers with slings, like they had slings, like David had a sling, could not miss hata. And so it means to miss the mark. It also means to go off the path or the way. And often it's used, we'll see in a minute, unintentionally. You're walking on the path with God, and suddenly you went off the path, right? So we tend to see life something like this, right? God gives us a path to walk, and the path is going to lead you on the righteous way. It's, the, it's the, um, the paths of righteousness that God wants you to walk. But what happens in life? Well, you get to a point where you got to make a decision, and you don't always make the right decision because we don't always have the right information. and Maybe we're not listening closely enough to God and, you know, maybe the community is pressuring us or whatever it is, and we can go off the path. That's what the Bible, that's how they, that's how they visualize sin. 
because they're ancient and they're Easterners. It's in concrete. So you go off the path. And what do you need to do when you're off the path? You need to turn. You need to repent. That's the word repent, to turn. Say, God, I'm off the path. God says, okay, I see you. Come on back. And now you turn, right? That's sin. You repent, you go back to God. Now, we think, we would hope that our life, the paths in life would look like this. At least it's clear, right? But this isn't how life is. Life looks like this. It's a signpost pointing into the fog. This is your walk with God. Yeah, it would be nice if we could see the path, you know, a mile ahead of us, wouldn't it? But that's not what God does. Walking with God is like taking steps in the fog. Your, your, your word is a lamp to my feet. Well, that's not lighting up a whole lot. It's, the, it's, the, it's lighting up just enough for you to take the next step. And so we know we need to go in that direction, but I can't see too far, God. Okay, now I got to work to get close to you so I can hear your voice because you're the shepherd who's going to lead me down the path. And that's why we cultivate our relationship with God so that we can hear him. That's the whole point. Because this is life, really, walking into the fog. And every day is a step of faith. That's how God wants you following him. All right, so you miss the mark. You go off the path. And the big thing is, oh, by the way, Go off the path, I put path, or it could mean go off the way. The way. Why is that important? What do they call the early Christians in the book of Acts? The way. Paul persecuted the followers of the way. Why are they called the way? This is the path that God wants you on. So they named their movement, that early Christian movement, took on the 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 idea of walking the path. Now, here's the thing, though. You can go off the path, and this is really important to note in your Bible, unintentionally. You didn't even know you went off the path. Why? Well, because we're limited. We don't have all the information. We can't see the future. We don't, you know, sometimes we have all kinds of peer pressure and community pressure and political pressure that we don't even realize we've strayed. We don't realize that we're sinning. And so, you don't need to do this. If you want to turn to Leviticus chapter 4, I'm not going to go in detail on this, but I want to show you there's a whole chapter of your Bible that deals with unintentional sin. You didn't know you were sinning. And the moment you realize you're sinning, you turn. You, you recognize your sin. So Leviticus, I put them on your sheet, but I'll go through just quickly because it's so important to notice that God realizes we're going to go off the path, not even knowing we were off the path. So it, it starts out, if anyone sins unintentionally, right? Now there is, in Leviticus, there's intentional sin. That's covered too, but there's a whole chapter on unintentional sin. Leviticus uh, 4 verse 13, if the community sins unintentionally. Now think about that. Entire communities can go off the path. I mean, when our churches these days split and they go in polar opposite directions, somebody's off the path. And now it's our job to figure out which is it us, right? And, you know, perhaps, I don't want to get into that, but you get the point. Entire communities can move off the path. The leader can sin unintentionally. And then 
if you look at verse 27 in, in Leviticus chapter 4, if any member sins unintentionally, and then what it says basically is when you realize your guilt, then now you can move back to God. You weren't even aware that you were sinning. But you have to go through the process. Now, of course, they're calling for a sacrifice, but we have our sacrifice. It's Jesus. And folks, this is this is actually Paul. This is how we can understand Paul. Paul thinks that he's doing the right thing. He thinks he's following God correctly because there are groups, communities called zealots in the first century that persecuted anybody that disagreed with them. That's what Paul thinks. And, and they have all kinds of verses from their Bible to justify their persecution of other Jews. But they think they're following God. And then, boom, Jesus meets them on the road and he says, uh-oh, I'm not following God. And so what does Paul have to do? He's got to go back through that process and realize he's got to get back on the path. Anyways, the main point here, hata, this is the most common word, simply means to go off the path. And this is the one that's easiest for us. It's easiest for everybody, because most of the time you don't know you went off the path. Right? You can be led by the community off the path. And so that's, uh, it's important to note, it's not, a, it's not a strong, what we'll see next in the next two, you're purposefully doing it. And now you get, it's, it's like a deeper level of sin. Okay, that is our first one. That's hata. Next, the, the next one is called, it's listed as rebellion. So if we look at rebellion, and this is key, because when you get this word rebellion, it's used in relationship. When you're rebelling against somebody, generally, people against their king. And that's what God represents. So rebellion is rejecting God's authority. You rebel against God's covenant. And this time, it's more purposeful. I know God's authority, and I'm rejecting it. I know better, but I'm doing it anyway. So it's more about your volition. Your will leads you to rebel against the covenant. I know the covenant, and I choose to go against it. And what happens, and this is where we get that the, the sin itself is connected to the consequence in mankind, is that when we rebel against our Creator, there is not only the, the consequence of God's punishment, that's one consequence, but it's also the punishment of dis it distorts your soul. If you want your soul to be in alignment, well, you got to be aligned with the one who created the soul, who feeds the soul. And if you're not, if you're rebelling against that, it distorts the soul. Now, by the way, in Greek, the word is psyche. That's where we get the word for psychology. And, uh, you know, before the before the 1500s, or prior to the 1600s anyways, before the 1600s, there were no psychologists as we know them today. The psychologists of the, of the Middle Ages were called priests or ministers or pastors because they were the ones who dealt with the behavior of human beings. The term psychology was, was coined by a protege of Martin Luther in the 1500s. So there are psychological consequences to rebelling against God. It distorts your view of the world. It distorts your 
view of you in the world. It distorts God. It distorts other human beings. causes all kinds of distortions. These are on your sheet, and you can look at the verses later. I'll just go through a couple that are, they connect this word, pasha, into the actual, then the consequence of it. Like, for instance, we hide our actions, right? We can hide them from ourselves. We can rationalize our behavior. When we rebel against God, we rationalize reasons why. We also hide them from God, right? Isn't this, this is Adam and Eve. What's the first thing they do when they sin in the garden? They hide. So they're hiding your, our actions. We become, or people who are rebelling become deceitful. You have to, because you're going against the grain of truth. So you become deceitful. You begin to revel in sin and chaos in the world. You'll, you can read about that in Proverbs. It actually creates anger because you're going against the order of God's created world. So you become angry. And then, of course, a consequence is the weight of guilt. That guilt becomes a gigantic weight that pushes down on you. Why? Because you're rebelling against. And in every one of those verses, you find the verb pasha, to rebel. What they're doing is scholars are saying, aha, rebellion feeds anger because you're rebelling against your creator, and that's an unnatural thing to do. And I know I'm going fast because there's just so much and we don't have time, but that's rebellion. Now, God says, I'll even forgive rebellion, right? He'll hold people accountable. If you rebel and you never take action to repent, of course he's going to hold you accountable. But God's desire, and I love this, um, this is on your sheet, and by the way, all of the definitions uh, are from what's called the theological word book of the Old Testament. God's desire is to provide salvation from rebellion. He'll punish you for the rebellion, no doubt, but his desire is, let's save you from the rebellion deliver you out of that rebellious state. Align to the will of God and get in alignment with God through love and mercy. And when you align yourself with God, when you begin to reflect the image of God, right, or in the New Testament terms, where you begin to reflect the image of Christ, then your anger diminishes and the world, you don't have to be deceitful. And all those things, all those consequences go away. Okay, let's Turn to the next page the, on the back. This is the, this is the one now, wickedness. So it was wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And wh what I love about Hebrew, this is, by the way, you pronounce it avon. What I love about Hebrew and in the Eastern context is, you know, we look at the word wickedness and we say, well, what does that mean? Give me some examples. Because wickedness is kind of abstract. In Hebrew, the language is very descriptive. And, and remember that an Easterner prefers everything in concreteness, not abstraction. So the verb for avon, it means to twist, to bend, to distort, to pervert. When you twist the truth, it's avon, because you're distorting reality in order to get a benefit. And if God is the ultimate in reality, it's going to come whack and smack back at you. If you're arrogant enough to think that you can just bend reality and it'll stay there, 
well, then you're going to get whacked when it comes back and smacks you in the head, which happens every day. Just follow politics. So when you twist, when you bend, when you distort anything that God has created, that's avon. It's wicked. It's, uh, it's not just sin because it's purposeful. You're doing it for your own benefit. So it's wickedness. And that's deeper than just, I went off the path because I wasn't aware. And of course, what happens when you twist and bend and distort in the world? Well, what happens to your soul? It's a type of measure for measure. Your soul gets distorted. Lying, the, the consequence of lying is that it distorts your soul. Yes, there's punishment, but it also distorts your soul. You become weaker. So why do we not want to sin? Because it puts you in alignment with God, but it also strengthens you, gets rid of any distortion. Okay, and then finally, what I have on your sheet is the primary consequences of, of wickedness are guilt and shame. And these are two, these are the two primary negative emotions, well, along with anxiety, guilt, shame, and anxiety. Those are the, those are the three primary negative emotions that affect human beings. And it's corrosive. There's a corrosiveness to guilt and shame. They're negative, so they have a negative effect on your soul. They wear you down. They're like a burden. They diminish your humanity. They make us weak, not physically weak, but character-wise weak. Once you distort the truth, it's easier to fall into lies again. This again, going back to Adam and Eve, guilt and shame, right? They broke the rule. They ate from the apple, and they were ashamed and realized they were naked, so they hid. And of course, they're hiding. Now they're trying to hide from God, and that's what we do. God wants to redeem us out of that. He wants to redeem us back into, uh, out of those, the guilt, and he wants to forgive our sin, the guilt, redeem us out of the shame, and put us back in the proper position in the household. So, these three words, you can see there's more to the words than just what we see in our English, right? We have, this, we have sin and wickedness, that avon, the twisting, the bending, the distorting, the perverting. That's what people do all the time, and it's wicked because it's attempting to pervert what God made good for your own benefit. It's wickedness. We rebel against God. We reject God's authority. Many people are, they rail against God. They hate the authority of God and go in the other direction, of course, to their own um, detriment by doing that. And then, of course, just the regular word for sin that the Bible uses, and we would say to miss the mark. By the way, in, in the New Testament, hamartia. Hamartia is a word that comes, it's, a, it's an archery word, means the same thing, to miss the mark. You tried to aim, but your aim wasn't sufficient enough to hit the goal. So you, were, you missed the mark. Well, now you got to work on your getting your aim right and get back on the path of walking. So what's so cool about this is when you line them up, God will forgive wickedness. He'll forgive rebellion and sin. So he's basically saying, I can forgive everything as long as we act together. My punishment is there, but my desire is to forgive and provide salvation out of these ways. First, while we're living, right? The first thing is to be saved out of those ways. And then, ultimately, salvation in the afterlife. 
Hopefully, and I know it's really fast and I apologize, but you can see there's so much information that does not come through the English. It's very helpful to understand um, inside of the Hebrew, and those Hebrew words convey it all. Not only the act, but the consequence that man, they just assume that's how God built the cosmos. You, dis you lie to distort the truth, it distorts you. And you don't want that to happen because it weakens you. Okay, number three, and I'll do this very quickly because we're going to get to this verse. It's uh, the, the latter half of verse seven, where God is going to say, he says, look, I won't clear those that are guilty. This, we're back in, I'm sorry, Exodus 34, verse seven. I will forgive your iniquity, uh, your, your wickedness, your rebellion and sin, but I don't clear the guilty right? There is justice in this world. And then he says this, visiting, visiting, and that's the word we'll look at, pakad, visiting the iniquity, and notice iniquity is the same word we just looked at, avon. Iniquity, which is wickedness, I will visit the wickedness of the fathers on the children, upon the children's children, upon the third and fourth generation. And so what we want to know is what does that mean? What is God saying here? And so there's a couple things we have to realize, we have to understand about these words that we're looking at. So the first one is visiting. What does it mean that God visits the iniquity, visits Pakad, the iniquity of own, which we just looked at, onto the children of the Father? So the iniquity here, and this is, this is what I was saying before, the word wickedness is the action, but it also means the resulting guilt. So in this case, the word iniquity, which could be the action, is used as the resulting guilt, right? So he visits the guilt of the father's sin on the children and upon the children's children, and upon the third and fourth generation. So it's the most likely refers to the consequence of sin rather than the action of sin. What does it mean then to visit? That's what we want to look at right here. So if we go to, now I have the definition there on your handout. The word pakad. It means to exercise oversight or inspect. It's like a supervisor inspecting a subordinate. In this case, of course, we're the subordinate. God is going to visit his people. God, at some point, is going to visit. He's going to make a judgment. What is he going to find when he visits you? So there's always going to be a point where you're visiting the person or you're visiting the community. So it means, and he's exercising oversight, he's inspecting, but it's a, it's, what he wants to do is cause a change in the subordinate. So it's action to change. What happens when a manager says, I'm coming to inspect the store tomorrow? Everybody cleans up, hide everything, hide all the junk that we haven't been doing, whatever it is. You're get, trying to get action out of that. You want to see what they've been doing. And the cool thing is about this word, pakad, the visit, it's either for better 
or for worse. It doesn't simply mean to punish. It could be better or for worse, right? If you, uh, when you were a kid and your mom says, says these words, wait till your father gets home. Now, is wait till your father gets home, is that good? Or is it bad? Right? Is she saying, wait till your father gets home and sees you got an A plus on your test? Or is it, wait till your father gets home? Because your father is going to come visit. And you don't know, is it good or bad? Well, you hope you've gotten your stuff in order. So that's Picard. Picard, God is going to visit not only the the fathers, but the children as well, the multiple generations. And that gets tough for us, right? Because, hey, wait a minute. Doesn't God hold individuals accountable for their own sin? But that's first what the word Picard means. And on your handout, they note that this is the one verb in the Old Testament get, that get, has given scholars so many problems. Because it's not only punishment. It could be a good visitation. Okay, so what does it mean then? God punishes, first of all, and I have this on your sheet, God punishes each person for their own sin. You can read later Ezekiel 18.20. The children do not pay the penalty for the father's sin. But is it possible that a, that a household or a group of people would suffer because of the family sin, right? The, the exile to Babylon, the whole nation suffered for the sins of the leaders. So even those who weren't sinning suffered. The sins of the fathers caused the children to go into exile for 70 years. How many, how many generations is 70 years? Three to four. So collective punishment may occur, or it may look like collective suffering because of sin, but it's not normal in the Bible. And so what one of the things that scholars point out is that sin has an aspect of, that crosses generational lines. Subsequent generations can be affected by their father's actions, by their sin. And this is unfortunate, but sometimes the parents' sin today will impact their children. And you can get into cycles of sin that repeat throughout family lines, generation to generation. Right? We even talk about this as generational sins and curses. So there's something about, the scholars look at that and say, you know, it's not that God's showing up in the fourth generation saying, a hundred years ago, your relatives did this, but that the sin of the fathers may still be affecting, may still be felt generations later. I think of post-World War II Germany. What was the collective guilt of the German people as their sins were being exposed? The sins of their fathers, you know, perhaps they even supported the Nazi regime, but didn't realize what they were supporting. So psychologically, there's collective guilt. And then one other thing I put on there, too, that scholars have noted is that in the ancient world, families lived in big houses, the father's house. And you might have three to four generations living in the father's house. Right? Just like when Jesus says, my father's house has many rooms, I go prepare a place for you. So. Third and fourth generation is possibly the effects, the downstream effects of sin, rather than God saying, picking someone out four generations later and punishing them. 
So God's visitation is intended for good. And, oh boy, we're running so far behind, and I apologize. God wants, he, he visits us for a reason. The purpose is because he wants to keep us on track, right? We can, if, we're, if he leaves us alone, we'll run amok. So God's visitation, his Picard, is intended for goodness, right? And what you can do is you can look in Hebrews, and I'll just read it very quickly, and I apologize for the time. But read in Hebrews 12. The whole thing in Hebrews 12 is about discipline, about being disciplined from, the, from God. If, if you're not being disciplined, then you're not a child of God because our fathers discipline us, and that's, that's good for us, right? So in Hebrews 12, 10 to 13, he says, Look, even our human fathers, even our human fathers disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But God, he disciplines us for our good and that we may share in his holiness. So God has a purpose for his discipline. And then uh, Hebrews says, for that moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, doesn't it? Seems like you're being punished. But it's not. It's later it yields the peaceful fruits of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So we accept God's critique of us as we work towards our holiness. Okay, I'm going to skip this slide. The next one is just, it, it goes on to verse 13. Let me go back to... I put that slide in there on verse 13 and realized it really wasn't that important. So you're not missing much since I skipped it. Um, okay, what are we doing in summary? Well, we got sin, right? And there's three words, wickedness, that's to, to twist or bend. Rebellion to reject God's authority. And then of sin, of course, is just miss the mark. That's every day. You know, this is how I'm walking with God. I don't know the path I'm on. God, I can't tell which direction I'm going. I'm being influenced by the people all around me in politics and community and, you know, whatever pressures of the world there are. And if I, when I realize if I'm off the path, I repent and I get back on the path. And then God says, and I'm going to come visit you. Right? I'm going to exercise my oversight as the, as the king. I'm going to inspect and see how you're doing, hoping to cause a change in the subordinate. And a change isn't always bad. It's, not, it's better or worse. So pakad doesn't just mean negative. And then, of course, sin itself. As I mentioned, the Hebrew has all kinds of words that denote sin, but in this case, three distinct words. And it has both the act and the consequence. And that's hard for us because we don't do, in our Western context, uh, we don't think about them that way. And then the main one is it really, it affects the soul. So while we're here on earth, our sin affects our soul. And that's the importance of staying away from that. We want to stay strong and right and true and integrated and all those good things that we can walk forthrightly with God in strength. Be strong and courageous, but if you've got sin, that's hard to do. Okay, that finishes up the divine attributes. Again, I apologize for the time. It does help to be able to dig into these and go back and watch the video again. Uh, you have the, the, the definitions. Reflect on those because it just helps you go deeper into our reliance on God is based on his character, that we know that when we walk off the path, 
He'll welcome us back on. And even if we rebel and don't quite realize we're rebelling, God will forgive us and we get back into relationship with him. 